This is On Second Thoughts. I'm Virginia Prescott. I'm Helen Ellis, a New Yorker who clings to her southern accent like mayonnaise to white bread. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Southern ladies have a code. When we don't have something nice to say, we say something not so nice in a nice way. Lucky for you, I'm here to crack that code. Helen Ellis and I chatted about her book, Southern Lady Code, when she visited Atlanta earlier this year. Here's that conversation, beginning with her expanded definition of the term. For example, you would say, she's a character, which means drunk. (laughs) Or she's an archivist, which means hoarder. (laughs) Or she's creative. She's creative, which I am a creative woman, which means slob. (laughs) So you grew up in Alabama, but lived in New York City now for, what, 25 years? 25 years. So when you were 10, you moved Aren't you wonderful? You are a good Southern lady. I think you've been here a year, and now you are officially one of us. Thank you. (laughs) So why did you move to New York City? I moved to New York City on my 22nd birthday, which was a long time ago. And I moved there because I thought that's what you did when you wanted to be a writer. You do not have to do that. And I had summer camp money from being a summer camp counselor, got on a plane, met another young woman through a chain of Alabama mamas because there were no cell phones back in 1992. And I met a woman at the central Grand Central Station clock because our mother says be there at 12 o'clock. We were we lived together and I've been there ever since. Oh, that's like a movie set right there. It really was. But we were wearing high waisted acid watch jeans. (laughs) Not so cute. Well, we do think of New Yorkers as being very direct, but are Southern ladies indirect? (laughs) Direct is Southern lady code for rude. (laughs) But no, we are not indirect. I think that some people think Southern women are passive aggressive. We are not passive aggressive. We are telling you exactly what we think, but in a soft way. All you have to do is listen. So, for example, sometimes women aren't comfortable saying something straight out. So, for example, if I said to you, you don't want to go into his office because he's handsy, what would you think that I meant? Uh, That probably there's a potential, there's a potential sexual encounter. That is correct. And that can be very uncomfortable for people to say. So we say he's handsy or he has trouble taking no for an answer. (laughs) And these are very nice ways to say something very predatory and scary. But all you have to do is listen. We're being direct. So we have spoken to people who, for example, a woman who moved up north when she was 12 and Mm -hmm. she felt like a freak for her southern accent and tried to lose her accent. Did you ever think, you know, I need to lose this code or this southern mess? When I first moved to New York, I thought, oh. I should lose the accent because so often I would go places and people would think that I was stupid, (laughs) which is not the case. Um, And then I married a New Yorker who loves my Southern accent. And I will tell you, a Southern accent is the most inexpensive and best accessory. So I cling to that accent. (laughs) So, uh, it, but there's a kind of defiance in that, too, I've yes. noticed. You yes. Know, like, the, for example, your your menu at your annual Christmas party. Yes. When I first moved to New York, I thought, I'm going to try to be like all the fancy Upper East Side ladies, and I'm going to put um, olives and mozzarella cheese on skewers, and I'm going to make canapes, and I'm going to run my oven at 450 degrees all night long. And I never left the kitchen, and my hair never left a bun. And I thought, that is no fun. People like to eat fun things. So now, if you come to my house for a party, there's going to be a big (laughs) 
seven pound spiral cut maple glazed ham ordered because it's always like the last one you ordered with a big tray of biscuits a cheese log and uh, onion dip with ruffles. Uh, so, so no gluten-free options. Absolutely, not. the <laughs> gluten-free can chew on the mistletoe or curtains. <laughs> <laughs> well, you grew up with some exemplary Southern ladies. Yes. I think of your grandma. You you painted this image of her in her white gloves, holding onto her Kelly bag. Yes, and your mother who went to law school in her forties. Yes, the idea of lady that's often set up as demure and yes. an opposite of you know a contemporary self-guided woman. Was there anything demure about these women? They were very demure. I'm a very demure woman, but like my mother who went to law school at 40 and like my grandmother who took me to get birth control at uh, at 80 years old and sat very prim and proper with her Kelly bag and gloves, I am a poker player. So it's a man's world. And I sit very demurely at a poker table. I don't speak unless spoken to. When asked what I do, I say housewife. And then as the game continues, just like, Somebody from Game of Thrones, I quietly reach across the table and slit your throat. <laughs> the, let that be a warning to yes. if, if Helen Ellis asks you to play poker. All right. Just wanted to let you know about that. But you can be quiet and powerful. You can be polite and taken seriously. You can have an accent and um, be funny and smart and kind. Mm-hmm. And these are women who grew up knowing that there are ghosts. Yes. Yes. Knowing that most of the men around them are probably Probably carrying a gun. Yes, absolutely. It's the South. Everybody has a gun. It used to be in the glove compartment, but now I think we can carry them right out in the open. I was just in um, Oxford, Mississippi at a coffee shop and a man in a gingham shirt and khaki pants with a huge gun strapped to his belt bought me a hot chocolate. And I took that hot chocolate and said, thank you very much. Uh, So, yeah, we come from a place where we are ladylike curl our hair, wear lipstick, but are very comfortable with the macabre. My guest is Helen Ellis. She's a podcast host and author of Southern Lady Code. Well, you also realize that your grandfather was, what, Southern effeminate? That's what we would say, (laughs) Southern effeminate. Which means? Which means, well, you know, in the South, it really is. Is he Southern effeminate or is he gay? And it was a question that we always ask of my grandfather, despite the fact that he lived with another man my entire life. Um, And it took me 25 years to write the essay um, about my grandfather, which was written with the most love. Because, you know, for me growing up in Alabama, nobody was out of the closet in the 80s. And when I moved to New York, you know, some girls moved to New York to be a big star or to be a writer. But really, I moved to New York so that at some point I might be the only woman in a room of gay men. And that happened at 42. (laughs) And it's happening in two weeks. It's a you know, it's a wonderful place to be where people are so much themselves and especially men. It's a wonderful place to be in a room of men where you do not feel threatened um, and you feel appreciated. And, you know, my grandfather was that type of man. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. So that that is a really interesting thing. You mm-hmm. know, of, of course, there were gay men in Alabama when you were growing up, but there was the code, I guess, for it. Yes. And they also, um, I don't know, did he... 
you're not out there. You can't be out there. No, I, I know so many women, and uh, my mother, when she was in her 70s, knew at least three women whose husbands left them in their 70s to come out of the closet because they had been married all their lives. And now we're in a climate where you can be more yourself, and even if that's 70 years old, you know, the last years of your life, you're coming out, but I'm not so happy for the women they left behind. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, you know, I, I, I still see it. I wonder how it is down here. <laughs> do you spend much time down here? I do. My parents are in Birmingham, and my sister and her children live in California, so we often will meet up for sort of a Graham camp in the summertime, and it's a very easy trip. But now that I'm on tour, I am just rolling in the deep of the South and loving it. I'm getting mammed every which way, and I love it, because <laughs> nobody mams me in New York. Because ma'am is southern, is New York code for something not so pleasant. Well, okay, so that's what I thought, too. I mean, I, I could have used you when yes. I moved down here, Helen, I must say. Yes, but ma'am is respect here. I, I, I love it. I deserve to be ma'amed. <laughs> well, before you were a ma'am, yes. when you were a young lady, um, you yes. had an epic birthday party that you yes. write about in 1983. What happened at this well, party? Well, I don't want to reveal exactly what happened, but I will tell you. If a gun ha- came out. That's- I will. <laughs> That is what I'm going to. I'm sorry. I'm yes, spoiled it. Yes. I had a 13th birthday party thrown by me, thrown for me by my parents, at which my father faked his own death. And by hiring an actor to come in and hold you went the much part, further in the went, spoiler than I than well, I was going you to. You opened by the, the way. door and I just slid right through like a water slide. Um, but long story short, if he had done what he did in 1983 today. It would have been videotaped by everybody's phone. He would have been arrested, sued, and probably be in jail. And last week, I was in Athens, Georgia, and at Avid Bookstore, and I read that story. My parents were there, and three girls, three grown-ass ladies who were at that party were at the reading. Um, And we all attested that it really happened, but we all turned out okay. As my father said, you know, back in the 80s, there was no internet, so you had to make your own fun. (laughs) Make your own fun as the lady code for fake your death and traumatize your daughter. (laughs) So, But it does bring up this idea of how things were, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, there's a story, the, the first story you opened with talking about like how you used to be creative, yes. a slob, and then you've sort of neatened up as you and your husband are living together in New York. Um, and he calls you at one point uh, a dominatrix Donna, Donna Reed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yes. But that's a reference that, you know, I find myself often as a ma'am working with my young producers, not they don't know what I'm talking about. And do, do, do people know what a Southern Lady Code is anymore? I guess that's the question. Well, I am here to teach you <laughs> what a Southern Lady Code is. And not only is it a way of sort of sugarcoating the truth, um, it's also a mantra that I use to write each essay and I use to live my life, which is be funny be honest, be kind. As I was raised, and you may have been raised this way or hear it now, every time I left the house, my mother would say, don't be ugly, which means don't, you know, it's nothing to do with the way you look. It's not like, you know, Joel bleach your mustache. (laughs) It means don't be rude. Um, don't be unkind. And it's that I still keep that. Don't be ugly. Hmm. We just got a nice note on Facebook. Reggie Carter folks said, bless your heart. Tone of voice and inflection make 
all the difference yes. in the meaning. Bless your heart can mean anything from thank you for cleaning these squirrels out of my gutter <laughs> to um, it can also mean sort of like, oh, you poor thing. Like, oh, you decided to bleach your own hair with one of those caps. Bless your heart. <laughs> and I like it because it's sort of like a Southern ladies, yo mama. <laughs> Bless your heart. You are so Southern. You wear deviled eggs as pasties. <laughs> <laughs> and it also can mean, you know, forget you. It's the last thing you hear before someone points a gun at you and fires. Bless your heart. Well, Helen Ellis, do you have to be born this way or can somebody learn the art of Southern Lady Code? Yes, you can absolutely learn. And I will give you lessons on the podcast and I will give you lessons in the book. All it is is saying something not so nice in a nice way. It's not lying. It's not being passive aggressive. It's just being a little bit softer. And you can be a little bit soft and strong. I think there are a lot of lessons here for being a man married to a Southern lady. Oh, yes. My husband speaks fluent Southern lady code. The other day I was sitting around the house and he says, oh, that's a good shirt for painting. And I don't paint. (laughs) I mean, don't wear that outside the house. (laughs) Helen Ellis, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Helen Ellis is author of Southern Lady Code. I spoke to her earlier this year when she visited Atlanta. You can join the conversation with questions or comments. Call us at 404-500-9457. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. Coming up, students often look up to their teachers, but how does that dynamic work when teachers don't look like their pupils? I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us to hear from an educator who studied that dynamic when On Second Thought continues. And we're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Bettina Love wants American public education to push beyond getting students to the next grade. Her book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, argues for dismantling tweaks to curriculum and testing that she says perpetuate inequality in schools and the nation. The former public school teacher, now UGA professor, is calling for more radical reforms, which she compares to the abolitionist movement. In a March column for Education Week, Bettina Love questioned whether white teachers are culturally equipped to teach in America's public schools, where more than half of the students are not white. As an education professor at UGA, she asked her students why they want to teach. When I caught up with Bettina Love, I asked her how they respond. So, you know, I think there's an idea that white teachers can't teach black kids. And so they walk in with those perceptions. And for me, I don't I don't believe that. I believe if you are trained well and you are thoughtful and you have life experiences. And so the first thing I do is I ask my students, why do you want to teach? And many of them say, you know, because I love kids. And you got to understand UGA students are like ed students around the country. They're smart. They're thoughtful. um, They're kind. They're very respectful. But they have not been challenged 
because many of them have lived in bubbles. And so what we try to do in schools of ed, and particularly at the University of Georgia, is try to challenge them and get them to think outside the box. So you saying you love children, that's great, but that's not enough, particularly to teach students of color, because you don't need to just love them. You need to love their culture. And that's what I really try to get at in the book. And it's not, and in the article, and it's not to say that white folks can't teach black kids. Of course they can But you got to be knowledgeable. And it's not just about you caring about us. It's about you caring and loving our culture. So you ask them to also guess which percentage of black Mm -hmm. people, what percentage of the U.S. population are are black people. How do they generally respond? So the the numbers range from some, a small amount will say, you know, 15, 13 percent, which is kind of right. But the majority of the class will go to 30, 40, 50 percent sometimes. And that just shows you the disconnect and how visible black people are and how, how invisible we are at the exact same time. Because black folks only make up roughly under just 14 percent of the country. So they, they're, they're just a little clueless about like what they're actually living inside of. Maybe, maybe not a lot of contact with black or brown students. Yes. And so the idea is how can you go into a classroom and want to teach black and brown children, but you haven't really been around us. You don't know us. And so trying to get them to understand that they have these blinders on and what we're going to do is we're going to try and get to this idea. We're going to just try and shut those blinders off. Okay, so you hit it pretty hard in your piece for Education Week. It was called Dear White Teachers, You Can't Love Your Black Students If You Don't Know Them. So what does it mean to really know your students? So we talk a lot in ed schools about culture. You got to know your students' culture. You got to be able to talk to your students. But we never tell folks what culture really is. And so I'm not just saying you have to know them and know their reality because that's not their reality. They didn't have a hand in their reality. And so to know the culture is to know the social, political, educational, economical, spiritual context that your students are living in. And so you need to know the history. Right? When we talk about inner city schools, how did these schools become inner city schools? They didn't become inner city overnight. There's a history there. There is a white flight. There's a gutting of resources. And so when I say learn your students' culture, learn who they are, I want you to be historian almost. So I want you to walk into that community and understand that the people who are there, they didn't have a hand in the poverty or the destruction of that school. That happened 20 years before they got there. And now they're living with that. And so that's where I'm trying to get students to understand. But then on top of that, to see black and brown students' brilliance and compassion and love and joy. Um, I'll give you an example. In Binghamton, New York, I think a month ago, four black girls were strip searched because they seem or they appear to be too happy. They were actually strip searched. And uh, school officials thought that these young girls had drugs on them because they were just happy. And they're 12-year-old girls. And I say, you know, black joy is unrecognizable. How can you strip search Four black girls because they appeared happy. And so where do you understand black folks joy and love in the classroom? Where do you where do we get to see it? So it's not just about knowing our hardships. That's just one story. But you also got to know our love and our resistance and our joy and our passion. That's about knowing the totality of black and brown folks. Well, I can imagine teaching, you know, the history of housing policy or the history of education policy in an ed ed school. How do you teach how to recognize happiness? How, how do we get beyond this in, in an education school? So that's a great question. My final paper in my class this semester is called Black and Brown Excellence. And so my teachers have to write 
why they are going to teach black and brown children. What's the joy of that? What's the beauty of that? I want them to tell me. That's their final paper in my class. It's not just about, oh, I want you to look at inequalities in housing, or I want you to look at um, special education and those numbers. All those things are important. But if you walk into the classroom with all those myths and all those stereotypes about black and brown children, we kind of reinforce that in teacher education. You have one class. That's a diversity class. That diversity class tells you all the ills and all the and, and the plight of black and brown children. All these and they love to use gap. There's an achievement gap. There's a language gap. There's a word gap. There's an economic gap. And you just you just sit there for 16 weeks and learn all the gaps. And then you go into a school with all those ideas. You can't just shut that off. And so I really try to refocus that and reframe that and say, okay, yes, those things are there. But what about why you want to teach the joy and love? Let's talk about black culture. Let's talk about our resiliency and our passion and our love and what we have done throughout history. We have made advancements in every part of American culture. We have gotten the short end of the stick if we've gotten a stick and we've made advancements. And they have to walk into the classroom and see that and see that brilliance in their students. So that's my final project for them. Well, this is interesting because, you know, you're talking about um, you're talking about understanding culture and character on some level. And as you know, there's a whole chapter in your book devoted to this idea of sort of teaching character, mm -hmm. these these buzzwords of grit. You know, this is something that's really big in education, business, military, you know, the idea of resilience, you just keep going. And, and so you do not like this form of <laughs> curriculum and how it's taught. So what is the what is the basis? What's your what first? How is it taught? And what's your basis for the case of why it should stop? So I'm not against, let's say we want kids to have problem solving skills and to be gritty and to have zest. All those things sound great. And yes, we want kids to be gritty. But you can't have these conversations without an understanding of how racism is in deeply inherently in our schools. And so for me, when we think about grit and we think about zest and all of these characteristics they want kids to have, they teach them in a very ahistorical way, as if the kids don't have it. Right. They may not have it in the context of schooling, but history tells us that black and brown people and people of color in this country have grit. My ancestors built this country for free. I know they have grit. My ancestors went through some of the most hideous conditions that that I can't even understand how they were able to survive it. And they did it. And so to have these conversations about grit and about zest and not have any historical understanding of the kids in front of you and where they come from and who raised them. That's deeply problematic, and I find it deeply racist. My guest is Bettina Love, an associate professor of educational theory and practice at the University of Georgia and author of the book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. Let's get to that idea of abolitionist <laughs> teaching, because your, your book describes Americans' public school system as the educational survival complex. What do you mean by that? Right. So, I, you know, I'm a student and I study the work of Angela Davis and Angela Davis has been writing for almost 20 years about, you know, this prison industrial complex. And she's also an abolitionist. And so when I looked at schooling and I thought about how schooling is set up, it's set up for black and brown children only to survive, right. but not thrive yeah. in, those, in those spaces. So you go back to the Native Americans, right? The Carlisle schools, the boarding schools, they cut their hair. They told them that their language, their the ways of being, their traditions had to go assimilate. We talk about English only education. That goes back to the 18, 1800s. 
um, separate but equal. All these educational policies, even Brown versus the Board of Education, all these educational policies have been about black and brown children sitting in schools and trying to survive that place. But then in the backdrop, everybody makes money. So the testing industries make money. uh, The surveillance industries make money. You have a whole idea that black and brown children are deficient. uh, They can't learn. And we're going to make money off that, that black and brown children are violent. And we're going to make money off that. We're going to put metal detectors in schools. We're going to put dogs into schools. We're going to put police into schools. We're going to put video cameras into schools. We're going to test them and test them. This is billions of dollars. All about making sure that black and brown children never thrive in these places, but they survive these places. And so for me, that's the the educational survival complex, very much similar to the prison industrial complex. So the the way that you describe that is um, that's probably a hard lift to go to a a school administrator or, you know, a teacher's association or a PTA, never mind the federal government, which works on or wants to says it's creating federal education policy and saying, you know, you are intentionally wanting kids just to fail, black and brown kids to fail. You're making money off of this when mm-hmm. so many school systems are crying poverty. How do you make this case on that level? <laughs> so I, I try to make the case by just giving real life examples about what's happening in our schools. And so we are now experiencing so much violence in our schools where young girls are being thrown in the classroom by their principals. Uh, A young girl in Wisconsin was physically assaulted by an acting principal and her hair was ripped out of her head. In Madison, Wisconsin, just last year, four teachers and two substitutes lost their jobs for racial slurs. And so I'm just going to start, you know, for me, it's to have this conversation, a real life conversation and tell the stories of what's happening to black and brown students in the country. And how do we how do we reconcile with that? And so one of the big things I talk about in the book is, you know, we got to get big money out of education. The testing industry has to get out of education. We cannot keep going in this direction where they're making billions of dollars. Surveillance. Police. Therapists. We need counselors. We need healers in our schools. We can't keep going in this direction. And so the case has to be made on a state to state district to district, school to school case. And that's for me, that's why abolitionists are so important. Because of the organization, the way that it spread. But abolitionist movement, you know, of course, was found with, we've got the famous, the Frederick Douglasses Mm -hmm. and those who had experienced slavery. But there was a widespread movement with white people. That's too. Right. So what is the role? I mean, you, you, we talked earlier about mm-hmm. the inequity of teaching or if you're if you don't really understand, if you only know the gaps, how do you really teach people? What is the role of people who are, you know, uh, God, I hate to say this, well-meaning white people, yeah. because that that casts a whole shadow of how people behave and their motivations. Right. And that's why the book calls for abolitionist teaching. I'm originally from upstate New York, Rochester, New York, and that's the home of Frederick Douglass. I grew up miles from where Frederick Douglass wrote the North Star. And so I wanted to talk about what abolitionists did. I think we're in a moment where many people are talking about abolishing this and abolishing that. But we're not talking about what who were abolitionists and abolitionists were everyday people, just like you and me, teachers, reporters, farmers, bankers, lawyers. They were everyday people, white, black, Native American and they all got together and said, enough is enough. And we're going to take a risk for somebody. You know, I tell people all the time, abolition didn't have Twitter. There's no Facebook, no Instagram. Somebody came to your house, 
said something to you and you knew to put your whole family, your farm, your house on the line for them. Right. The Underground Railroad freed over 100,000 enslaved African-Americans. And so how do we get back to an idea of taking risks for other people, saying that we are going to abolish something and we are all going to work together? And abolitionists, yes, there were folks like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. And these are like the the canon of abolitionists. But this thing wouldn't happen with everyday people. And these weren't just good intentioned white people. These were white folks who said, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to do something about it. I'm not just going to read all the books and go to all the rallies. I'm actually going to take a risk. And that's for me why abolitionists were so important and to tell their stories and to have conversations about what they did and how they did it. That, you know, that's a big part of the book. Yeah. In fact, there are a lot of examples I'm thinking of that. Get, is it St. George's County that that added a in Maryland yes. added a uh, Black Lives Matter curriculum? Yes. So, you know, getting something like that passed is monumental, <laughs> but it is the, the work of some dedicated individuals. But if you're asking that educators, they must teach about racial, racial violence and oppression and civic engagement in communities in a lasting way. In our culture right now, where there are a number of people or a number of forces that say, like, racism, you know, that's a thing of the past. We, we don't live like that anymore. Are you asking teachers to take on the role of activists on some level? Yes. <laughs> yes. Undeniably. Right. To be a teacher. Well, so how does that go over in your local school system? I think every school system is different. But I think we have to get out of the business of seeing teaching as a political. Teaching is a political You're either teaching something and not teaching something else, but you're making decisions about what you're going to teach children about their history. And so teaching is a political act. And we've gotten away from this idea that being a teacher is somehow being neutral. You're not neutral. You're either teaching about something or you're leaving somebody out. That's not neutral. And so we have to understand that teaching should be a part of your activism. You know, you just can't do this thing You can't want educational justice from 8 to 3.30. And that's why I call it educational teaching and not, I mean, that's why I call it abolitionist teaching and not abolitionist pedagogy, right? Pedagogy is the art of teaching. But I'm asking for a lifestyle. I'm asking for this to be how you see the world, not just something you do in your classroom. So I'm asking teachers, yes, you should you should be going to rallies with your students. You should be teaching them. And yes, you may not be doing may not be able to do these things during the school day because of political affiliations and all of that. I totally understand that. What about after school? What about when we can organize? We have to organize. And that's what abolitionists did. And so there is a time and a place. And maybe at your school you can't do these things. But to think that we can't talk about race and racism in our schools and sexism in our schools That's not what civics education is. UGA education professor Bettina Love. Her book is called We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. Stay with us for actress Kiana Simone Simpson in the house, or at least the studio. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when On Second Thought continues. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Despite recent news that it will not be renewed for a second season, the horror thriller series Chambers lives on on Netflix. The show won praise for casting a Native American as the lead, along with something else we see too little of on TV, a super smart black girl math nerd. 
as her best friend. Kiana Simone Simpson plays that friend. She's a Decatur native and University of Georgia student who already has some impressive roles to her credit. I spoke to her earlier this year from Athens. Kiana, welcome. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And congratulations on Chambers. Can you tell us a little bit about the premise of the show and your character? Okay, so Chambers is a spooky show. It's about a young girl. She's 17, and she has a freak heart attack out of nowhere. So that's already scary, right? Right. And um, then she starts taking on these weird personality traits of her heart donor. So the story kind of goes along as she's trying to figure out what's going on with her. And my character, Yvonne Perkins, plays this girl's best friend. And um, Yvonne, she's super smart. I mean, she's a computer whiz a math geek, and she actually uses a lot of these things as she's trying to help her best friend Sasha along as she's, you know, figuring out what's going on with her. So it's been it's been so much fun playing this character. And, um, you know, she has other dimensions, like she's she's helping her mom who's suffering from early onset dementia. And she has, you know, two younger brothers that she's caring for as well. So Yvonne is a she's a really strong little girl, and mm. I'm I'm so happy to be playing her. Yeah, and an int- really interesting character. And for you, Thank you're you. an entertainment and media studies major, right? I am. But I, I hear am. you also love math. <laughs> I am a math geek. So is there a little <laughs> bit of Yvonne in you? Yes, yes. That's why I was so excited to play the role because Yvonne's just so close to my heart, being that. Math has always been my forte in class, not to like toot my own horn, but it's just true. Uh, A couple summers ago, I actually enrolled in a calculus class at UGA over the summer just for fun. Um, you know, <laughs> okay, you're impressive enough. I, <laughs> you have every right to toot your horn. But, you know, being in the entertainment, you know, looking at the entertainment and media industry from a mm-hmm. meta perspective, how difficult is it to find a role like that? You know what? I think it's becoming less and less difficult now because we have Ava DuVernay's, Barry Jenkins, Spike Lee's, and they're creating this space where little black and brown girls can get these roles and be portrayed in a better light than we have been before. And I'm so happy to see that the film industry is growing like that and progressing. Hmm. Well, let's listen to a clip from your character, Yvonne, hanging out at school with Sasha, the main character, played by Sivan Lear Rose. So she has other talents, too. (laughs) Yes. The rap queen. Well, you chose this as one of your favorite scenes in the first episode. Why do you like it so much? Well, first of all, it just reminds me so much of my childhood when, you know, we're at the lunch table and everyone's beatboxing and competing in freestyle. And at the vending machine, you're waiting on your best friend to get her snacks. The line's super long, so you're just trying to, you know, kill time. So I was so excited to do this. It's so funny. I was um, just beatboxing in between takes. That was actually not in the script whatsoever. Uh-huh. And the director, Alfonso Gomez Rejon, he's walking past and he's like, whoa, what are you doing? I want you to do that on the next take. I didn't believe him, but I just went ahead and did it for fun. And he was like, I love it. And we spent like an hour and a half filming it over and over again. And I'm like, whoa, this is so cool. Like a piece of myself is in this show now. Okay. You know what you're setting yourself up for, right? 
Right. That I'm going to ask you to, to do some freestyle for us. Oh, you you want me to freestyle? Yes, please. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Let me see. Okay, okay. Give me that. Give me that. Give me that. Kiki over here don't know how to act with on second thought. And we having a blast. Yeah, I told you I'd freestyle for you real fast. Repping Decatur and UGA. Talking on the radio on reading day to all the students. Let's rock these exams and have a good, good day with your friends and fam. Hey. Whoa. Okay. There are many, many. There's much applause on the other side of the studio wall. I can see here. Thank you so much for that. And that is, I mean, really one of the more lighthearted scenes in a series that is super scary. Yes, yes. Do you gravitate toward that material that's supernatural and spooky or was this new for you? Um, I feel like within the last few jobs that I've been doing, I've been getting closer and closer to this spooky horror life because I also have a film called Ma that's coming out later this month. And I'm loving it so much. Um, I, In the beginning of my career, I did a lot of period pieces, which have always been like my favorite. And I love that I'm jumping into another genre. And it's really exciting to see how um, the filming is so different of the two. And I mean, I love it. I love the fake blood on set <laughs> and the screams. <laughs> well, and you're also working with some terrific actors. Tony Goldwyn of Scandal yes. fame, the, the guy yes. who played the president. Uma Thurman is in this show. I know. So, so how was that experience to work with these heavyweights? And we'll this get to was, the other heavyweight after this. Yeah. <laughs> I can guess who that is. <laughs> it was just so fantastic to be working with these people, these thespians. Um, Uma Thurman, I've always looked up to her from Kill Bill. She's been an inspiration to me on how to act without speaking hmm. and kind of, um, you know, filling the moment. You don't always have to be saying something. So that's something that she, you know, kind of instilled in me before I even met her. And then, of course, Tony Goldwyn, I mean, I've always been Team Fitz <laughs> from mm -hmm. Scandal, so it was so great to meet him, first of all, because I was a fan, and then second of all, he had so many tips and just, you know, guidances for me. He actually directed one of the episodes, so I got to spend a lot of time with him, and just, you know, getting that mentorship kind of on set meant so much to me, and um, I, I'll cherish it forever. You know, the, their characters are so funny because they are the parents of the dead girl or the girl yes. whose heart was donated. But they're both, yes. um, you know, super kind of new agey. They're, they're, and they're kind of <laughs> burning sage and yeah. appropriating Native American kind of rituals, which is a Honestly. really, really interesting part of this. So so is this appropriation play something that attracted you to the script? Um, I just I love that the show is showing so much of the Native American culture. Um, I'm African-American, so I know what it's like to have your culture appropriated. And I love that this show, um, you know, it kind of it, well, it definitely talks about that appropriation. And also it informs the audience about the different types of traditions of Native American cultures. And I'm very happy that um, the show is bringing awareness in the many ways. I think by them showing these different families and, you know, Crystal Valley School kind of appropriating Native American cultures, it's, you know, showing people what not to do. Yeah. And I love that. I love that Chambers is doing that. It's it's kind of woke horror. <laughs> woke <seems> horror, <laughs> yes. Gives me lots of get out vibes, Jordan Peele. Yeah, get that. <laughs> Definitely. So how did you first get into acting growing up in Decatur? 
Oh my gosh, it was an amazing trip to get here. Um, when I was about nine, I knew for a fact that I wanted to act because I was obsessed with so many jobs. My very first one being an astronaut. I wanted to be an astronaut so badly. <laughs> so um, I once I finally convinced my mom to put me into acting classes, and I was doing so many different showcases. It's just like I, my determination would not stop. You know, um, a lot of different things I did as a kid, you know, playing soccer and tennis, I kind of, you know, gave it up within the year. But acting was something that I knew I would never, ever, ever leave. So um, it was once I once I got to be in high school, um, I told my mom, I was like, it's, it's time. So we moved out to L.A. And um, that's when I met lots of casting directors, other actors and things like that. And um I booked my first film, A Christmas Blessing, when I was 16. So that was many years from when I first began. So it was a trip. But um, I uh, had lots of help from mentors like um, Tony Vaughn from Tyler Perry's Meet the Brown, the TV mm -hmm. show. I met him in a, in a grocery store. Yeah, okay. When I this, was, is, this is the yeah. story I need to hear. I heard about yeah. an unscheduled audition in a yes. grocery store parking lot. <laughs> yes. So um, I was in seventh grade leaving cheer practice. And I go into the grocery store and I see Tony Vaughn and I tell my mom, I'm like, Ma, this cannot be real. But when I looked him up, I was like, oh, this is real. So I go up to him. He's checking out. He's checking out his groceries and everything. And I'm like, hi, um, my name's Kiki and I want to be an actress. Can you put me on TV? <laughs> I don't know. I think he just saw the boldness in, in me and he was willing to at least talk to me, which meant so much to me. And I walked with him all the way to his car like a creep. And I'm like, I'm like, so can you tell me this? Can you tell me this? But he was so sweet. And um, I did a monologue for him in the parking lot. And um, I mean, that's like the now that I am, you know, on this side of acting, I'm like, that is not something that um, everyone would allow. Uh -huh. But he was nice enough to, you know, be willing to give me my my chance. And ever since then, he has helped me so much with just, you know, guidance through my acting career and helping me know like, OK, this is this is a good decision to make. This isn't you should go to this class, not this one. You should meet with these people, not these people. So. I'm, I thank him so much for that. I bet he doesn't go to the same supermarket anymore. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> don't ever tell anybody which supermarket he goes to. Kiana Simone Simpson is an actress, Decatur native, and a Georgia Bulldog. And you may recognize her from the Netflix series Chambers, CW's Black Lightning, or The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Okay, so Veron Yvonne and... Chambers is far from your first major role. In 2017, you played Henrietta Lacks's adolescent daughter, Deborah, in the HBO drama The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Let's hear just I a little did. clip. Did you know my mama? No, her sex. Everybody does. They've been in outer space, in a nuclear bomb. You should be proud. But she said everybody knows her. She'd have been in bombs in outer space. Mama sells something big. Yeah, hush. In the ground when you was two. You alive or you dead? Can't be both. Finally, somebody did call me back asking for more of my blood. What made my mama sick? What kind of cancer? Am I gonna get it too? And how can she rest a piece if they keep shooting her up into space like that? Well, so we hear a little bit of Oprah's voice there as the adult version of Deborah Lacks. Oprah, who also executive produced, how did you get that role? Well, um, I, I really think manifestation helped me with getting that role because 
I had been called Oprah my entire life, which was like, oh my gosh, everyone thinks I look like Oprah? I want to play her in a movie one day then. <laughs> so um, it was something that I spoke into existence for a long time. And when I got the audition, it was almost unbelievable because I, I was like, there's no way. This is almost like written for me. <laughs> so um, when I when I auditioned, I was super nervous, but I was very excited and I prepared a lot more than other auditions. And um, when I when I got that when I got that call to come meet the director for a callback, I, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is this is really happening. And um, I, I booked the role, and within a few days, I was at GPB's location in Atlanta meeting <laughs> Oprah for the first time, <laughs> which amazing. was fantastic. <laughs> well, we all think of it uh, the, the place a lot differently after learning that. That's really quite amazing. <laughs> but now Oprah has told Vanity Fair she wants you to play her in a biopic. I know. Oh, my gosh. That day, when I when I heard that for the first time, I, I almost passed out. I couldn't believe it. It's just such an amazing feeling to know that Miss Oprah Winfrey sees me as talented enough to play her in a film. And that's my biggest dream. And I promise if the film's ever made that I will do her justice. Mm. Kiana, I, I feel like we're talking about an IMDb profile of someone who's been in entertainment for a really long time. <laughs> but you've been acting since you were a teenager. Is there, yes. do you think, a secret to your success? Or are you just that good? Um, I, I, I really think having faith and praying a lot has been something, well, I know that this is what's been helping me along. And also, I think persistence. I've always been like very serious on the saying, you can do both. Um, and that's something that I've always instilled in myself because I remained, you know, I, I remained a college student while I'm acting because I want to make sure that I have something to focus on when I'm not working. And I think that's something that happens to lots of actors and people in the film and even music industry where you're not getting work. You're kind of freaking out. and You don't really know what to do. And um, you can kind of sometimes get in like a, a what am I doing with my life kind of um, place. And that's happened to me a few times. And when I'm going back to school and I'm in class, it's. It's kept my head on straight, and I think that's why I've been able to continue working. Um, I just, I kind of, I, I have school on the other hand. Well, you know? I, I so don't I have know how you balance things. it, honestly. I mean, that's I a pretty busy schedule. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> but because we do have you, uh, we're going to see you on the big screen again at the end of the month, Octavia Spencer's film, Ma, for this one. Now, they reached out to you, without spoiling it, it tell us about this movie, another horror film, and your character. Yes. So, um... Miss Octavia Spencer plays a mom, and she meets a group of teenagers, and she wants to be the party mom. And um, it gets very spooky from there. So I play the younger version of Miss Octavia Spencer's character, and um, you get to see... You get to see how Ma grew up and, you know, the things that she used to do. So, (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like... For one, you're not on the astronaut path anymore. You're kind of well on your way. Hopefully I play one one day. Yeah, there's a good way to do it. Um, (laughs) But then, but it's also, you said your mom moved out to L.A. I mean, yes, that's a huge commitment. What is what is her role in all of this? Your own ma. Yes, my own ma. So my mom has been the biggest supporter and honestly, like my my sidekick in this entire um, this entire pursuit, because 
when I first began, um, when I moved out to L.A., I was 15, so I was a minor. And my mom, she's always believed in me. And I think it even, you know, of course your mom's always going to believe in you. But I did this showcase when I was uh, about 14, and I won the whole thing. I won Female Actor of the Year. And that's when she um, started, you know, knowing, okay, not only do I believe in her, but, you know, industry people do as well. So I think that's when she knew that, you know, if she's investing time and money, that there. you you know, it's a possibility that something will come out of it. And also, I think she's, it was something new. My mom's a, a real tech geek. So she's a computer science um, person at AT&T. And um, she's a she's a real tech whiz. And um, I think it was just something new. The film industry was something that she hadn't done before. And um, she always tells me that, you know, I helped her bring so, a different type of, um, you know, excitement into her life, you know, along with, um, you know, being a, a, a tech person. So, She's been so helpful, and I'm just so happy to have her in my corner. That is Decatur native Kiana Simone Simpson, also a UGA Bulldog. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. We get help from Don Smith, and Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. Thank you.